John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 587.1K2225, certificate number 50644. are on the record as being an introvert. Yes. Is that not true, John Roderick? A socially adept introvert. And how do you, def- you know, because I've seen you at gatherings large and small, yes. and you're a hail fellow well met. That's right. Whatever that means. Good times. You're a, you're a good time, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Are you doing a, a, a bit? <laughs> are you, <laughs> like on the inside, are you crying and being like, got to do an impression of extroverts I've seen? Or have you just gotten more comfortable over the years? You know, my dad was an extrovert and my mom wasn't, uh, like a, a, a really pretty serious introvert and watching them, I think as a kid and seeing the ease with which my father moved through the world and contrasting it against the obvious struggle that my mom had. I think I learned pretty early. Like if you can, if you can manage to, to adopt your father's mannerisms. You know, my dad walks into a room and does the thing that you've seen me do, which is walk in and say, hello. Hey! You know? And everyone <laughs> says, Norm, even though your dad's name was not Norm. Yeah, and even though nobody in the room knew him before, you know, uh, he just walked, he, he just presumed that he was welcome everywhere. Is that the secret? It, be presumptuous and the world will be, beat a path <laughs> to your door once, once you beat a path to their door? I think every every room, for the most part, you know, most rooms full of strangers uh, do welcome someone that's hale and hearty. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, just because it's it's better than somebody that walks in and, like, and pulls a gun out from under their coat, right? <laughs> if, if a guy walks in and pulls out a bunch of bananas from under his coat, you're like, welcome. That's what I always tell Mindy when I say, let's have John over. And she says, really, John? And I say, well, better than a guy who pulls a big gun out from under his coat. And she she always agrees. That's right. She, can't, can't argue. You're not wrong. But I, did, I think it's not uncommon. I was talking to somebody the other day who said, um, thank God for the microphone because – the microphone is the introvert's friend, right? If you're in a, if you're an introvert who has, who, who's comfortable in a room full of three people, but not in a room full of eight people, because you're terrified of doing the thing where you say, "All right, uh, um, all right, we're gonna uh, everyone." The buffet is. Uh, <clears throat> you need somebody to. Before that, you had to chink on a glass with a knife. The the microphone gives you a chance to be in front of everyone and social, but at the same time, you're protected. I mean, you're protected by. By the the shield of the microphone. Well, I mean, any stage show, unless you're in the round, you, you're doing the uh, the CIA thing of finding the place in the room where you're up against the wall. You know, <laughs> you, you're you've got eyes on everybody. You're safe on that stage, and they can't argue with you because you can you can uh, out yell them with the microphone. The microphone. But no, I I I, I a lot of people have a difficult time uh, understanding that. That I consider myself an introvert. Do you? Yeah, I, I've always suspected that you're actually an extrovert, having imprinted on your dad. But when introverts became cool in the yeah. internet era, you thought, "Oh no, I'm I'm one of these thoughtful, introspective men. Yeah, I'm gonna me, I'm gonna steal some introvert valor." That's right. Let me <laughs> let me cloak myself in this super cool identity of introvert. 
Uh, yeah, I want the the glowing brain, super brain meme. Yeah. Are you? Do you find yourself like an introvert in the strict kind of Jungian sense, where like even though you can do it in the in the room in the big group, like you what you recharge uh, in in alone or in a, a quieter setting? Because that's the that's the definition, right? It's yeah. it's where you feel at ease and can kind of recover your sense of self. Some people need a big group to do that. My sense, uh, yeah, I mean my. What is true of me is that I prefer to be alone and I, and I, I, um, uh, interacting with other people is a drain. It's a chore. Yeah. And it, um, and if I do it, if I have to do it for more than a pretty concentrated few hours, I become exhausted and, and, uh, depleted. And does, does that extend even to smaller groups? Like, yeah. like even a podcast? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, your company. Drains me <laughs> to no end. <laughs> like you have tapped my, you've tapped my little, you put a little syrup tap in me and you're just taking all the syrup out of me. So by the end of this show, it's just going to be all right. fake smiles and <laughs> hearty laughter. It's why I like the bath so much. I mean, I take long baths because it's a place that I know I can be left alone. It's true. There's rarely anyone else uh, in there when you go into draw bath. Hardly ever. Is, uh. And what's the longest? What's the longest you've ever been alone? Do you think, in any sense? Well, you know, I I w- walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul, and I was wondering if that—that's always your answer. Yeah, for everything. Well, Ken, what's the mentioned? coolest thing you ever did? Well, <laughs> what's the one time that you felt the strongest? When well. did you eat the most Bulgarian fruits? <laughs> well, Ken, but those were days where I would go the. You know, I would go a few days without ever speaking to anyone. What does that do to one? You don't notice it until you do speak and your voice croaks, you know, when some, when you pass somebody on a, on a country lane and you're like, you know, Dobry Den and you realize I was, geez, I haven't spoken to another person in, in, um, a long time, longer than you would be able to do if you were in a city or something, you know, is Um, is any part of it mental? Like the brain is not even ready to make words. Uh, I, I, it's, it, I think it's more that you break the silence at least for me. I mean, because I was also, you know, greeting people in a foreign language. So my brain was already kind of trying to, you know, leap ahead, but yeah, your tongue is unaccustomed to it. But did but you it, consider bringing a microphone? No, I had no luck <laughs> on your wall. I didn't want any battery powered things, <laughs> but in a way you, I was alone for six and a half months. I yeah. mean, I, I, I met people along the way. But I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any familiar company, and it wasn't, you know, I didn't spend every night in youth hostels like hoisting pints with people either. I was sleeping outside a lot of the time. You're in barns. You're in haystacks. So, uh, but also when I, you know, I live alone, or I, uh, I normally have my own home and I live there by myself. So, if I'm not careful, if I don't schedule events or or accept invitations, I I can sometimes realize it's been several days since I saw a person or talked to a person. And I feel like it's unhealthy. I have one experience like this that I'll probably bring up later. And yes, you slip into it so gradually, you don't realize this is abnormal. Yeah. Uh, or maybe this is not good for me. But there are, there can be insight in solitude. Did you find that? Oh, yeah, but uh, a the, lot. The, the, uh, the enlightenment of the hermit? You, you get into a state of kind of forced meditation, but but unfortunately, I think for me, like it's an undisciplined meditation, and so um, without any technique, without applying a technique of meditation, and there are techniques that have been practiced and honed by monks around the world. Uh, it and it in my case ended up being like months and months of approximate meditation. But with a lot of... Is that of, as good as like, what, uh, a few hours of actual meditation? I'm not sure, right? I mean, I, I definitely arrived at states that I, when I look at what people report as meditative, you know, the results of weeks and weeks of silent meditation or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you get to a place where you have a real clear picture of the voices in your head that are talking and you kind of can see and hopefully quiet them and... uh and I was engaged in that process, but it, but it was much more, but I had a, a very antagonistic relationship with them and myself. And, uh, it, I, maybe if I'd had a little handbook that was like, here's a guide 
to maybe if I just had brought Siddhartha with me and just read well, it every night. Yeah, I mean, take 30 <laughs> seconds and download some, you know, yoga meditation right. MP3 and then suddenly. But this was 1999, so I didn't mm. even know what an MP3 was. I'm not even sure they'd been invented yet. Probably not. That was probably keeping a lot of people from from Satori from right. from uh, a Nirvana state. When I when I I I had to check the internet like at grocery stores and you'd sit down <laughs> at a little kiosk and put four uh, Deutschmarks into a box and beep, boop, 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 too boop, bad your trip across Europe predated even the internet cafe. Yeah, it did. Y- you couldn't hang out there like Jason Bourne and uh, Almost, there were internet cafes, but you know what? They were for gamers. Yeah. And so there were all these people like with headsets on playing games, even then. Well, speaking of Japan, (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, before we get to the hikikomori, Hmm. people love when we, you know, the constant delayed gratification of omnibus. (laughs) There are these two strains of thought related to solitude, right? That it's, that either it's good for the soul, like the case of the, the early Christian hermits, you know, the, the, the desert fathers, they would call them, you oh. know, St. Ambrose or St. Jerome, and they would just wander off into the Sahara and, uh, and you know, that's how they would approach God, I right. guess, because that's what they called the voice in their head. Right. <laughs> so they, yeah, they, they had a solution for your problem. <laughs> um, and it's in many cultures. Um, in Japan, there's the Yamabushi hermits of, you know, that kind of combine the Buddhism and Shinto. Man of the Mountain, the guy that the, the colloquial TV commercial image of the the enlightened one sitting on a mountain. Right. And, you know, the only people he sees are the the, the heroes of the beer ad. Right. <laughs> Imagine that, that climbs life. Up. <laughs> Everybody coming up to you as a climber from a beer ad. <laughs> now, wait, you, uh, let me just ask you, you're sort of cut from a introverted cloth. Yeah, probably more so. But what, or at least less able to do the impression of the... Uh, of the Hardy Fellow. How do you? How do you uh, self-identify? Oh, introvert all the way down. I mean, I, I. It's not that I, and probably in that I prefer small. I don't like to be alone either. I'm not. I'm not good at that. Uh-huh. So, I guess the classic version of the introvert is you know comfortable with a a small group of known people right. around around whom you don't feel you have to. Yeah, it's me and my mom yeah. basically all the time. Your mom and two dumb dogs. <laughs> my mom and her two friends from work. <laughs> Are Karen and Betty coming over today while we watch our stories? Uh, and and so, you know, I don't do it. And this is the great thing about uh, a long-term monogamous marriage. I'm not trying to sell you. Right, I know, I know. You're always you're always just dropping it in there. The great thing is that there's always somebody there. You're leaving pamphlets on my on my kitchen table. There's always someone. Yeah. Marriage. Is it right for you? <laughs> what? Uh, so the thing about marriage is there's always someone there, and they really don't care if you're on or have any good material because they know you don't. Sure. They know not, it's been a decade uh, since you had anything interesting. They're not interested in you at all. You, you, you haven't had anything interesting to say since the first Obama presidency, you know? Well, it's really interesting because what— when people talk to me about long-term relationships or marriage, one of the things that I mean, uh, that I've heard my whole life people say is um, that one of the benefits of marriage is that uh, you don't have to die alone. This fear of dying alone. Yes, and it, and not so much the moment of the death, but just like I think you're imagining the decline right. alone. And when people say that to me, I'm like, God, I really. Hope I die alone. I don't want anybody in there looking at me and like <laughs> watching me while I'm dying. Like I've got my dying to do. What you want is a low impact buddy there for several decades, and then you can walk out onto the ice flow. <laughs> low impact buddy, <laughs> as, as I call my beloved spouse. How's my low impact buddy? I mean, tickle, tickle, tickle. <laughs> <laughs> there really is something to that, hmm. that um, it keeps you from going crazy to have a bit of a sounding board, a bit of an audience, somebody puttering in the in the background, you know, right. uh, just someone to to be a person for, but not have to be too performative. See, that's God for me. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like, do you hear God making coffee sometimes? Yeah, a low impact buddy or... that I'm like, hey, God, I was thinking. <laughs> Well, I mean, that kind of was the idea of these early church fathers or, or the Indian sages who, uh, you know, Sri Ramakrishna said the last part of life's road must be walked in single file. You know, he, he mm-hmm. wanted to die alone, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're going to be walking the last part of life's road in single file mm-hmm. unless you get it together, my friend. <laughs> With my special hat on. But there's also this separate strain of thought that's kind of been given to us. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the timeless religious view on solitude. Right. Modern... 
uh, psychology and science has given us quite a different picture because now we have clinical data on what happens to people who are actually alone. Well, and we know clinical data. Well, we, we always believe clinical data, <laughs> yes, don't we? we do. Especially in a real science like psychology. <laughs> in the 1950s, Donald Hebb, a Canadian who is called the father of neuropsychology and even the father of neural networks. You know, this is, this is no dummy. This is a guy doing real work. Uh, he did a famous test for years where he would put people in a cubicle. He would... <laughs> I think he, it was a time when you could tell people you were doing something else. Right. Effects of caffeine or whatever. And then you could just put them in a cubicle. Put them in a cubicle. And in this case, I mean, this is not just solitude. Because give them a 40-year job at General Electric. Because in this case, he's also just filling them with LSD. Oh, yeah. No, no, he's, he's not. <laughs> like in this case, but he's putting sensory deprivation stuff on them. They've got, um, their sound is muffled by headphones of some kind. They've got these kind of lenses, frosted lenses that, you know, let in a translucent light, but they can't really see anything. They've got kind of mittens on and they're on a soft, a soft mattress. Mm. And it really is like, what happens to the brain when it experiences nothing? And to me, this is like, well, this, this will uncover our true Edenic state. You know, we've removed all inputs and, and, and social pressure and everything from these people. What is the actual human like? And it turns out it's acute psychosis. That's what, that's what the default human is like. If you, if you, within, and it's surprisingly fast. Like within two to three days, he would see people just essentially become raving psychotics. Really? And it only took like a few hours before they were um, just unable to perform at par at, at kind of the baseline cognitive tests he was giving them. Four hours with mittens, and you turn into a big dummy on on analogy tests or whatever. Like a, but there, I, I feel like there's a gulf between being a big dummy and being a raving psychotic. Well, yeah, it's about two and a half days. <laughs> <laughs> like on the first day, you're just not so good at the IQ uh, uh, pictures with the dots and the squares. Right. But then within two to three days, it really is like you just are on an incredible amount of mescaline. Really? Yeah, the effects are the same. Uh, hallucinations, like you're unable to, to tell reality, cubicle reality from cubicle fantasy. Wow. And people have, Tried this in different scenarios. There's an Italian guy named Montalbini who just likes to go into caves. There's a world record for most time spent alone, which probably Guinness should no longer observe, given what we know about the mescaline-like symptoms. But this guy, uh, you know, he'll spend upwards of 300 days, more than a year, just in some Italian cave. And then he'll wander out to be like, I did it. And the funny thing is what you lose in these cases, almost every uh, case study has found, is you lose your sense of time. Right. The fourth dimension is so important. Uh, Montalbini, for example, found that when he wandered out after his 366 days, by his count, it was like something like 291. Interesting. Because he was moving, without the sun, he was moving to some different cycle. He was marching to the beat of a different orbit. But he had like an easy bake oven or something in there. I mean, he, he didn't just take 300 days worth of sandwiches in. He was, he was living. Maybe he's finding some kind of delicious Italian fungus. On the walls, but it's it's different than wearing mittens and frosted glasses. Like he had stuff to do, right? So this guy's in a dark room with some, and he brought books. You right. know, you know, this guy is not tel- uh, testing what happens to my mind if I don't use it for a right. year, right, right, which right. is essentially what Donald Hebb was doing. But even in this case, you know, with stuff to do, just being away from people and the world, you know, daylight messes you up. There's another woman in a convent who found that uh, the longer she went without contact and the outside world. Um, she would move on to some cycle where she would be awake for 20 to 25 hours and then asleep for 10. And that became her new day, essentially a 30 to 35 hour day. Well, so now do you have a natural day that is different from a 24 hour day? I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to find out. This has been a major struggle of my whole life. We've talked about the, the you know, the possibility in the past that people slept in smaller chunks. And but, I feel like you were skeptical, uh, but that's still a 24 hour cycle. Yeah. My, my feeling is that I was made to, ha- to live in a world with a 28 hour day. Tell me why you think this. Cause you, you always have four hours worth of stuff you haven't gotten done at the end of every day. Well, because, because when I naturally fall asleep, um, Oh, it moves up four hours a day. It's usually about, it's usually if I were on my natural cycle, I think that I would stay awake for um, 20 hours. And then how long? And then I would sleep for sleep? eight hours. So, well, then you're, uh, yeah, you're sleeping way too much. Well, no, I would be sleep. What no, I, I mean, what, now you are. No, what, what I do is I stay up for 20 hours and I sleep for four. Oh. 
in order to make it back into the world. Because you need to get back on our cycle. And what I really, really, if I'm left alone with no outside obligations, that's what happens. I get on, I get on a, a, um, a different cycle where, where I, where I wake up and where I go to sleep has nothing to do with the sun or, or the day, the, the normally or me knocking on your day. door. And it's you knocking on the door that keeps me in a, in a like, Oh God, it's 10. Yeah. But I don't have time to do that every morning anymore, John. I'm, I've got a Jeopardy trophy. I know. I've got I things. Know. I got places to be. You got to drive around and show people your Jeopardy trophy. <laughs> but it, but it's been it's a source of. I thought about it two days ago. Like why can't or to you one point eight days ago one point eight days ago <laughs> why can't the why can't I either be on a twenty four hour cycle like it seems everybody else or why can't I warp the fabric of space time to create four extra hours for myself that all I want to do is sleep. I just want to sleep in those four hours. But, I do the same thing where I will delay bedtime, but I've never thought of it as as perhaps I'm a an alien from a distant world. I always just assumed it was something psychological about me, fear of death, maybe fear of Put, death, putting yeah. off bedtime. But you don't think you're putting off bedtime. You think you authentically just want a longer day because and, I've lived, I've I've absolutely lived in conditions where I had nothing to do, uh, no nowhere to be tomorrow, and nowhere to be tomorrow for weeks at a time. <laughs> And so nothing, you know, no one governing me and able to just sleep and, and wake when I chose. And invariably my, my days would stretch, you know, so that, so that I was living, I was living in a state where if you combined wakefulness and sleeping, it would be more than 24 hours per Unit per unit. Per, what, what should we call that? John Day. John Day. John Day, Oregon. John Day. <laughs> <laughs> I have some bad news for you. There is no planet in the solar system with a twenty-eight hour day. Ugh. Mars What's is the, the Mars is the best you can do. It's almost twenty-five, but that's you're, you're really just gaining thirty-seven minutes of sleep a night, and no you thanks. have to live on Mars. No thanks. Uh, there's some I, other downsides. I understand now that the radiation uh, profile on Mars is uh, makes it less interesting for me to be a Martian. Everywhere else is shorter. Like Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, these are all built for people who who want, uh, you know, between nine and 18 hour days. I'm from Alpha Centauri. Yes. You must be from a different star system. Yes. Uh, Futurama, I believe, it has a 28 hour day. Have you, just, have you ever thought of living in the fictional world of Futurama? I did not know that, but that makes sense. It does you it? Know. Yeah, it does. Well, I feel very much at home in that show. Um, I'm a bender. If people do not go outside, you know, we see strange mental symptoms in other words and this has been most acutely covered in the media in our era in the far off country of japan uh where all human experiments are ongoing and it's a little bit tricky because western coverage of this tends to exoticize the phenomenon of the hikikomori in the way that you know we're endlessly delighted by the strangeness of japan and we think it's okay to basically treat them like a different species just because their game shows are weird. Right. And I don't think that's actually true. Oh, I was thinking that what, what you meant was that the Hikikomori were just girls in schoolgirl outfits <laughs> with, with, uh, with bunny ears. Well, there is that. We, we tend to treat the, you know, because we're exposed to a very small segment of their media and, and kind of fixate on the strange stuff in mm-hmm. the West, we do kind of get this idea that, oh, yes, every Japanese person has. Uh, you know, an odd sexual profile. That, that or is this we like a suicidal salary man or... Right. There's yeah. like four kinds of Japanese people and <laughs> choose your fighter, basically. Uh-huh. They're either at Budokan cheering for <laughs> Cheap Trick, trick. <laughs> or they're, uh, they're like dressed as one of the guys from Reservoir. Dogs. I feel like that's very much a, a, a power pop fans uh, view of Japan. Yeah. yeah to, to, to start with the Cheap start Trick Start with Budokan <laughs> and work, work your way down. Well, you know, I'm going to Japan for the first time this spring. Oh, you've never been. I've never been. I always was, I think, really shy to go to Japan because of an introversion issue. I don't like to be... Because it's um, bustling? Bustling and also I would stand out like a sore thumb. Oh, and I so see. when I was, you know, when I was younger and traveling extensively overseas, any time I was in a place where I attracted attention just by standing there, it made me so uncomfortable to be in a place where where I just was um, a fish out of water. And I pictured myself in Tokyo, just trying to stand and be anonymous and and being like a beacon. 
that it actually inhibited me from from visiting Asia. I like that you have a phobia of a place you've never been in a situation you've only imagined. <laughs> I, well, and and it and it's true. Like I imagined it and it was worse than all my I mean all my other fears. Being um I wasn't worried about the food, I wasn't worried about violence, I wasn't worried about any kind of danger. The 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 most pressing danger was to be uh unable to be invisible yeah. under any conditions. So every time I walk, it's like being on the Joko cruise. Anytime you walk out of the door of your cabin, you're on. And, um, and so I didn't go. I mean, well, I mean, imagine, you know, in a, in Seattle, it's very easy for two kind of middle-aged white guys to kind of always feel invisible, right, but blend. you know, to be a person of color in America is to be on the Joko cruise All the forever, time. except right. with no uh, honorarium. And it, and like the, you go outside the door and everyone's like, well, there's a black guy. Right. Let me, or well, let, especially let, if you're like standing at the door of a jewelry store, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, with, yeah, it gets more acute in with, certain situations with $10,000 in cash. Right. Um, the, uh, the, I think the most profound realization about, of this I ever had was I, I, um, I stepped off the uh, train in Stockholm for the first time and walked into the train station and had, Never been more invisible. It's like the party in, in being John Malkovich where everybody's John Malkovich. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because even in Seattle, you know, I still am a tall, big white guy. Mm-hmm. But in Stockholm, I was absolutely the mean average. I just stood in the train station and I was not handsome. I was not tall. I was not. Styl- you were not stylish? I wasn't stylish. <laughs> I wasn't cool. I wasn't anything. I was like, I was just absolutely like the average person. And I'd never felt it before in my whole life. And I, and it was a, it was a incredible relief, just this wave of relief as I walked around this train station feeling for the first time, I think just like the, um, just like a normal. I have this, I have this leftover thing from high school, I think too, where I just don't want anyone to look at me or notice me because what if they make fun of me? Right. I mean, hand you a microphone, right? I mean, that's my solution. Give me a microphone. If I'm going to, if you're going to look at me. Are you going to bring a microphone to Japan? I carry one all, all, what, everywhere. What you should do is just get a big Totoro fursuit, and right. then you'll just be a giant, friendly forest spirit, sure. and the <laughs> Japanese won't think twice. I'll be Adam Savage at Comic-Con. <laughs> no, I carry a Mr. Microphone with me everywhere. <laughs> I can take over radios. Uh, I just bring an easy-bake oven in case I have to be in an Italian <laughs> cave. But I'm going to Japan, and I'm extremely excited because I finally realized, like, well, I just, I have to get over this. I, you know, I have to just go and throw myself in. I'm sure I'll be I, fine. I got over it when I was seven years old living yeah. in Korea because, you know, you're, you're just a, a blonde child getting poked at and tousled right. all the time. So basically, I think all blonde children should just be, all children should be dropped into a racially uh, different monoculture when they're like in second grade. So people want to touch your hair? Yeah. Just so yeah. you get used to being looked at. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, get used to being, a distinctive minority, I guess. Um, you know, in in our childhood, Japan was also a signifier for ominous, growing economic power. Right. It's even the subtext of Die Hard, because there was this was there was constant news coverage of this trope that the Japanese were buying the Chrysler Building, and well, what's next? The Statue of Liberty. Johnny Carson told endless rueful jokes about the the Japanese domination of America. And it's funny because that's kind of now happening with the Chinese, but we're not we're not telling the jokes so much. Maybe this time we know it's real. I don't. Doesn't seem as funny. Yeah, I don't know what the, what my theory is this time. Well, I think uh, I think the Japanese uh, the Japanese felt like they or it felt like they were beating us at our own game, whereas the Chinese seem to have reinvented the game or or are are beating us at a game we didn't know we were playing. What does that mean? We have less of a chance now. I don't, you know, because they have a planned economy and because they have a extremely repressive society, oh, right. it feels like we can't. We, we're we not can't, jealous, right? We're, whereas the Japanese just seem to be like doing good. They weren't. They weren't killing Uyghurs. <laughs> no, they were building better things and seemed to be at least like, uh, like cooler, cooler than us. Yeah, maybe that's why. Maybe that's the longer night of the soul. Like, I mean, I feel. I don't know. I feel obsolete now. Yeah. But certainly there was some sense of obsolescence then. But that 1980s economic bubble burst. And when it did, it did a number on Japan. And it did a number on a whole generation of Japan. You know, they, they essentially have a lost generation of kids who kind of grew up in the wake of not just economic stagnation, but kind of a, a destroyed dream you right. know, of, of 
it seemed uh, they seemed fated for for greatness, and then promises were broken. Even recently, looking at at uh, hotel prices in Japan as a whole, not in central Tokyo, obviously, but prices in Japan, I still have a holdover in my mind from the eighties, thinking that it would be impossibly expensive to visit Japan, and it's not. It's affordable. Even real estate is oddly cheap, you know, somewhere on the outskirts of Tokyo. Uh, it's, you know, they've done a great job with density and urban planning and city management. And Tokyo is just not that expensive a place to buy a house, weirdly. Um, unless again, right. you want to live in the Ginza or the something. The house is like 18 and a half square feet. <laughs> it's a little love hotel. No, it's a cute little thing from an Ozu film and you live with your grandma. Uh, that's the one problem though. I'm not going to fit anywhere. Uh, physically. I'm just not going to fit through the, through the doorways. I'm assuming. Uh, you'll be okay. Right. You're not a, you're not like a polar bear. I'm closer to a polar bear than you. They're getting taller. Oh, okay. As That's well. good. good. I mean, good. they have gotten a lot taller. We, they're, they're eating macaroni and cheese and tab. Yeah. We get <laughs> the two things that made me tall. <laughs> we gave them quarter pounders in the eighties and, uh, they're literally, I mean, the, the average South Korean woman is eight inches taller than she was in 1914. Isn't that fascinating? All my, all my Welsh cousins that still live in Wales, they're all five foot four. It's weird. The, the Welsh apparently don't have nutrition. Like I would think of weight and stature and body type maybe as a, as a nutritional result. But the fact that your body just can't give you height. It's, you, you think you were fated to be a tall person, but nope. If nope. you had just uh, eaten fewer Hostess fruit pies, um, who knows how tall you would be. It, it may also be that they start working in the coal mines at a very young age and their, their heads bump the ceiling and God s- stops them from it's growing. Like, it's like putting a goldfish <laughs> in a small bowl. Yeah, exactly. It just senses. <laughs> Now, the Omnibus is a academic project that we right. hope will survive uh, in some kind of status as a time capsule for the future. Yeah, it's like a, a little old, uh, an old mid-century town idea of putting some stuff into the corner of a bank. And as a result, it is freely available to all. That's right. We do we do two Omnibi a week. So most months have between eight and ten new entries in the show provided for you as a public service by Ken and John enterprise. Cause we believe, uh, it's important. A historical purpose is being served Correct. now in order to make the show economically viable. We do allow public support via our Patreon at patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you give at the $5 level, you get a new bonus episode. So instead of nine or 10 a month, you're getting 10 or 11 a month. And it's a cool episode. I enjoy making them. And the thing about a five dollar donation is, you're because you're getting. I mean, what what is that? Ten or eleven hours of entertainment for five dollars. What you really are, you're chipping in fifty cents for each omnibus you listen to, which is honestly, you know, I feel a little bad. Like I have a a thrifty Mormon voice in my head that says, "Do not ask other people for money." True, I, I, a lot of us do. But it's not so bad to say, "Hey, if you want the show is free, but if you want to pay fifty cents per show." Honestly, for an hour of entertainment, that's a pretty good deal. And you could pay a dollar a show, and that's at the ten dollar level, and you get an additional bonus at the ten dollar level, right? Like if you go to a movie, you're right. paying fourteen dollars. Fourteen dollars for for I mean two hours of entertainment. Let's let's okay. be honest. All right, but that's seven dollars. Still seven dollars an hour. We're right. offering a much better rate. Um, we love all our listeners, um, but we especially we offer a special thanks. To those who support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Right. Think of, think of it that way. If you gave $14 a month, it would just be like going to see one movie a month. What's better? Some crappy movie or like 10 hours of me and John talking about our junior high memories. It's, it's no contest. No contest. As a result of the economic collapse, um, there's been a you know a problem that was observed in in Japan as early as the 90s of young people just withdrawing from society, choosing not just solitude but isolation. Really? Um, How do you even achieve isolation in a in a place as densely populated as Japan? You do it by living in your parents' house. Um, oh. You you just never leave. It's it's a real life hack. That's tempting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too late for you. I don't know. <laughs> and this is not unusual in. Anywhere else on earth or even in the West, I mean, 
I think now for the first time since the 40s, more American 20-somethings live at home, at home with their parents than any place else. This is, the, this is the classic thing you say about Italians, right? That Italian, young Italians live with their parents yeah, all, like, the, all the way through adulthood. And it's, it's over half, basically. Until they're not, until they're yeah. not young. 30, 32% of Americans live with their parents. 31% have a spouse or a partner. 14% alone. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of now in the West, it's the dominant form of, of young life. Is it, not to move out. In Italy, they live with their parents, but they go out every day and ride their Vespas around and smoke cigarettes and... And yell at their girlfriends. Yeah, right. Right. And this is a, a very... You know, the hikikomori are not marked by living at home, which has become increasingly common worldwide for economic reasons. Uh, it, it's it's their social isolation. The phenomenon that that social scientists and psychologists are observing is they do not have any social interaction and are increasingly ill at ease with any social interaction. Are they on the internet? So having interaction in that way, or are they completely uh, blacked out? The, uh, you know, the relationship between technology and this is still disputed. I kind of want to go through anything you read about this will list three different causes and they'll be different than, than what you read. You know, nobody really understands why this is happening, but to my mind, technology has to be part of it. Are these the people that have like waifu pillows uh, or is that a different subset? Uh, you know, I wonder if they just all be, you know, if total size social isolation also breeds a certain kind of celibate asexuality. Right. I mean, they, they are, uh, I mean, certainly it's, it's related, you know, if you're anxious, you know, there's different kinds of social anxiety. One might lead you to never go outside and one might lead you to, uh, you know, avoid romantic relations. In this case, uh, you know, it's not true that a very small percentage of the hikikomori are the classical stays in their bedroom 24-7. Because that, again, that will break you. I mean, they do still go outside, but they go, as you've noticed, Japan is often a bustling place. People in Japan talk nervously about the muen shakai, the relationless society hmm. that they have built, where um, everybody's up and around and doing things. You go into a restaurant and it'll be packed, and uh, but every, you know, almost everyone's going to be eating alone. For example, um, you know, social connections are, are kind of tenuous and fra- frayed. And as a result, you know, Hikikomori will go out, but they'll go to a convenience store. They'll go, to, you know, they'll go to places where, and they'll go at 2 a.m. So they just don't have to deal with anyone. This um, is, they sound just exactly like all my goth girlfriends from the 90s. <laughs> it sounds like just, you now. Just you eating at about? a 7-Eleven at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, and convenience store food in Japan is much better. Right. So it's right. a much more defensible. It's less sad if you're eating delicious Japanese karage and, and onigiri from a from a convenience store. Um, they uh, Because this is a generation that born of the, of the 80s bubble bursting, they are now aging. Um, a recent survey found... Of Japanese aged 40 to 64, 613,000 middle-aged people are still living in a bedroom at their parents' home and preferring to have no social interaction with anyone. 600,000 yeah, and that's, more. And that's almost certainly, and that's just that generation, so it's right. almost certainly undercounting. It's 1% to 2% of that generation. And, and, and the, the sense is that the, that the economic collapse and the just sort of ennui that settled on Japan uh, – just robbed them of hope, or uh, what? What was it that created well, it as almost an epidemic? Should we go through the, the the proposed causes? You tell me how plausible you think these are. Um, Japanese parenting and family structure: very permissive parenting. Parents who will not get tough with their kids and say, "What are you doing? Go get a job." Um, you have a built-in safety net. You don't have to worry about mom and dad ever getting tough. So. You, but don't, there, you don't have to leave. But there are cultural expectations, it, it, right. it, it, like culture-wide, that kind of step in and take over some of that responsibility, right? And that's to me, that's one of the most convincing cases that gets made, that the, rig- the rigidity and the high expectations of Japanese culture often uh, lead to when, when failures come, they tend to be catastrophic. Uh, A lot of these Ikikomori are kids who... Got a B dro- one time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dropped out of school or, uh, you know, didn't... Uh, you know, had a career path that was not what they had in mind or, you know, one bad thing happens and suddenly in a shame culture, it's hard to break. You know, in in, uh, in our society, it, it's not uncommon to hear parents say, oh, you know, Susan's going on her own path, but uh, she really loves working at that pet store or, yeah. you know, Susan's on her own path, but she loves writing for BuzzFeed. Or, 
And and in Japan, it would very much be there's one way, there's one definition of success. And once your kid has a bad semester of cram school, uh, you know, they really feel like there's no coming back. I mean, this is one of the tragedies about any sort of teen suicide is that in a teenager's life, these small insults and, and small failures can get so blown out of proportion because they, you know, they don't have a... It's the scale of it. Yeah. This is the be- the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And, uh, you know, for someone for someone at 16 or 17 years old to, to make like a, fa- a, a fatal or a fateful decision about the rest of their lives... Because somebody at school, um, because they were embarrassed, right? Or yeah. because something bad happened rather than just being able to see the whole picture. Fixate on that for months and kind of spiral. But but f- to persist in that it, then into middle age, to never recover, um, seems, seems uh, unique. Right. I mean, I guess it happens to you when you've still got teen brain and are not acting rationally. And then, you know, half of these hikikomori have been in their rooms for seven years or more. So, uh, you know, I guess just to get into such a pattern when you've got broken teen brain and then you just can't get out of it. You don't seem to be someone who suffers from depression. Would you say that you do or don't? I don't think I do. I feel like the one time I was closest, it was related to kind of social isolation and it didn't feel like depression at the time. It didn't feel sad. But in hindsight, you know, when I see the lack of connection I had, I was going to talk about this uh, in relation to technology because you asked whether or not technology is a factor. And I, I always assume in cases like this, yes, you know, the nothing changes about people except tech. Mm-hmm. So if we're seeing something we've never seen before, it's got to be related to what we're doing to some part of our brain with some glowing thing we have. Um, my freshman year of college, when I moved back to the States, I really knew nothing about living in the U.S., and felt very out of place with, you know, I went to UW, I went to University of Washington. I felt very out of place with just these kids who had had normal high school experiences in, in Wenatchee and Everett and Spokane. You know, I'd never. Just all those normal childhoods in Wenatchee. <laughs> well, as normal as you can get. I mean, that's a normal American childhood with it's in a 7-Eleven parking lot. But it was late grunge period too. So there was a, there were a lot of cool kids at the University of Washington. Yes. And I loved the contact high of that, but maybe it was just frustrated by the fact that it was not filtering down to me. Right. I see. Uh, and the thing that, and so, you know, and I had, I had friends in my dorm and, but the thing that had happened was I had realized the internet existed in 1990. When was this? Early 19, late 1992. Uh-huh. Uh, everybody at UW it wasn't even late grunge period. It was right in the heart it's, and center it's, of it. Exactly right in the middle. And it was, it was the beginning of internet dawn. There was no World Wide web, but if you had, you know, the university of Washington gave every student an email account. And so suddenly computers, which had never had anything good for my entire life suddenly had just amazing, good stuff and social stuff as well. You know, you could, all those news groups that you went exactly. to, to See, devoted to Rubik's X, Cubes. X-Files, <laughs> yeah, you know, like right. <laughs> find out what 150 X-Files weirdos are talking about or uh, or people who are reading Doom Patrol comics or, or whatever it is. And I could keep in touch with my other friends who were scattered all over the country at universities. And so I really just started to spend way too much time in these fluorescent lit computer labs. Right. And it, you, I could kind of see the hikikomori reinforcement happening where the more I did it, the less I really wanted to go hang out in front of the, the TV with the guys on my dorm floor. So I would just take the back stairs and people were like, who is that guy? He never even takes the elevator. Like, right. what's his deal? His ghostly white complexion <laughs> suggests that maybe he's been living here for a century. Is he a computer science major <laughs> who, uh, who died 20 years ago this very night? <laughs> So I didn't feel I didn't ever feel depressed, but like I was certainly isolated in a way I've never been before or since. Disconnecting, yeah, disconnecting, and it really kind of didn't. It wasn't great for me, right? Uh, I feel like it, it was the thing you're describing, where suddenly you see somebody on the road and you don't know what to say because suddenly you're Howard Hughes right. bottling your urine. <laughs> so I'm not blaming tech, but it, a lot of these. Japanese kids are on there and kids now they're in their forties and fifties. A lot of them do spend a lot of the day surfing the web and just watching TV. And, you know, they don't feel a lot of fulfillment from it, but that's just how they pass the hours. There are so many people whose entire social life is on the web, but who are not, who still manage to piece together a, 
an active life yeah. within the community, right? I mean, they go to work, for instance. Uh, but it is weird that it's kind of all a sham, and really, they'd rather be hanging out with, uh, yeah, with um, whatever uh, Totoro fan twenty six. Yeah, there are there are other furry friends. I mean, I I I imagine, and we we've been we've been predicting this for several decades now. But the idea that you will one day inhabit an avatar that has all the traits that you would choose for yourself. And you think of that as your real identity. Right. And that your avatar be the, be the thing that is in the world. I mean, that, that seems like a, like science fiction, but also is totally true and, and happening all the time. I mean, I'm terrified of what the crippling effects would be for your real life interactions. If you feel like you're a lesser fake self, just, you know, going to the coffee shop or, you know, getting changed from the store clerk or, you know, like those are real people. Well, you know what my prediction is? What is your prediction? Well, let me tell you, Ken. I think that I think that the Snapchat filter or the Instagram filter uh, is uh, going to become a real time heads up display. Heads up display, so that you'll be able to choose how other people see you through their uh, Snapchat glasses. And if you want to appear as a uh, little bunny foo-foo everywhere you go, that's how you'll appear. People who opt out of that reality will, who are walking through the world and like, no, I'm not looking at you through your preferred filter. You are not little bunny foo-foo. It's going to be, it's going to be the equivalent of now kind of uh, refusing to use someone's preferred pronoun. It might be worse than that. I wonder if it'll, you know, lifting up your goggles to actually see who you're talking to would be, it would be the equivalent of today just you know, reaching to somebody's collar and kind of ripping off their shirt, you know, like it would be like nudity seeing somebody, seeing somebody's real uh, flesh wear appearance. There will be, there will, I think, develop social divides. And if you refuse to wear the goggles, basically, if you refuse to see people as they prefer to present themselves, you'll be, you'll either have to live in a separate community or be regarded as a heretic. I mean, it, it may be a thing where cities this will become a city rural divide Yeah, where if you move to the city, you don the gogs. I mean, one thing it'll fix is this thing today where we already have that, but it's just attractive people uh-huh. who, who get that special world. <laughs> at least, at least in this future, ugly people who, who, uh, you know, who really choose a nice attractive av- avatar and have other good qualities, you know, they'll have the same bubble as, uh, well, as people with genetic gifts. That's the problem because in all of these things, we imagine that it will be democratizing but in fact, yeah, it never is. Right? No, because it'll cost money to have super cool avatar qualities, and if you're poor, you won't be in, you won't be allowed to. Yeah, imagine the pricing. It'll be like unlocking video game characters today. It'll be oh, you want an A cup? Well, that's only a hundred bucks a month. Oh, you want a C cup? Mm. The problem is that's eight hundred fifty dollars a month. That's right. Yeah, there'll be some in-app purchases. Do you really want bunny ears? Well. <laughs> And so, so when you look at someone's avatar, you'll be able to tell by the size of their ears how wealthy they are. To me, tech is certainly complicating the, the hikikomori solution. I mean, if nothing else, they're less bored than they would be in their bedrooms if mm. they didn't have uh, e-tail to so you do. Mean, you, so you mean less, less uh, reason to, to come out. Right. It feels a little like interaction, and it's just something to pass the time. Because, I mean, to me, that would be the struggle if I were in my childhood bedroom. Like, what am I going to do in there? My parents are sliding, uh, uh, you know, noodles under the door. And that's, right. it's what happens in a lot of these situations. They're so isolated, they prefer not even to see the people. Not, e- not even with. to interact with their parents. I mean, there, and there are certainly cases of, you know, just years of bottled urine being Ugh. discovered. Um, You'd be in there just pulling on your stretch Armstrong. Is that what you call it? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, other factors besides tech that have been mooted, um, smaller families in Japan means a, you know, a huge number of kids who are only children with all of that entails. Imagine a nation of Hodgman. Mm. Hodgmen? Hodgmans? Hodgman. <laughs> Hodge people? Hodgesman. <laughs> um, and, and the kind of pressure that parents bring to bear on, a, on you know, the, one, the one son who will carry on the family tradition in, in a kind of patriarchal culture. And if, again, if something goes wrong at, at university or cram school or whatever, right. you feel like you've not just let down yourself. It's your own. Right. You've uh, let down your whole your, family, your whole clan and all and, your ancestors and your, the, the hardworking parents means you probably, so 76% of these are men. So a lot of this becomes kind of future of masculinity, hand wringing, hand wringing, 
which is very popular in Japan now to complain about their equivalent of soy boy is uh, herbivore man. Herbivore man. And this is mass culture worrying about no one's dating. Everyone's an herbivore man. Girls, get, get you a carnivore man, you know, and there's there's going to be none left. I'm going to be really big deal in Japan if I if I go just walk down the street just chewing just on a exuding, blank steak. Exuding the masculinity <laughs> that you always do. So uh, And so because of this, um, you know, a lot of the worry about men has fixated on the, the relationship they might have with their fathers or the non-relationship, you oh, know. Right. Like the daddy was never home. He worked such long hours, and then he went out drinking with the guys, and they didn't really get to see what being a grown-up male looks like. Now, how much of this is is a product of ideas in Japanese post-war culture, and how much of it is in, ingrained in Japanese culture dating back to, um, you know— pre-Admiral Perry. I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, Admiral Perry just messes everything up. And immediately this culture that that just wanted to, you know, thought there was a perfect kind of harmonic perfection they had already achieved, suddenly they became the poster boys for change. Right. Um, but that must have already been in the national character, some kind of... We think of it as being very stoical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so much of what we what we think of as Japanese culture is filtered through the eyes of the, through the lens of contact. But the stoicism is real, I think. And that's another, uh, um, root cause that's been suggested for the Hikikomori phenomenon is that this is a country where you can't really rebel in outward ways. Rebellion has to be kind of quiet and stoic. So withdrawing is the natural response. Right. Um, you know, in our, I don't know, in our culture, you know, what would you do? You'd, go graffiti some subway trains or you'd form you get, a terrible band. Get or, big ear gauge. Uh, exactly. You know, and, get and, tribal tattoos. Yeah, tribal tattoos. Cut, split your tongue in half. In Japan, you have to sit politely in your room. In any case, you know, whatever the causes are, uh, the effects are not, they're, they're, they're less often compared to depression and more often to post-traumatic stress disorder. Huh. Like these people who really feel like the world broke them right. and they're just not up for that anymore. And it gets to a place, it's often compared to autism, in fact, which is weird because we think of autism as a genetic condition and not something you can bring on yourself. But apparently a lot of the atypical ways of thinking that develop in isolation are not too different from what you would see in a, in a neuroatypical kid today. So I have a lot of firsthand experience here because of the years I spent as a as a lurker on 4chan where a lot of this stuff is part of the lingua franca there. Um, uh, uh, it's a kind of subculture of people uh, and a portion of that subculture are people that have self-diagnosed failure to thrive. Young male outsiders who are on the computer all day, never leave their house and, um, and see themselves as persecuted, but also, see themselves as sort of harbingers of, of, a, of, of a future state when, um, when, you know, this is the new normal and it, and, and we see it described in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it, it manifests in very negative forms in our culture, the incel movement, which is really just a different version of this. Right. It's just that they're seething rather than sitting quietly. It, it's directed outward, right. in many cases, into vi- not just anger, but violence against women, for example. Right. Or, or, and that's not something, I think, that's been linked to this in Japan. You don't. Maybe the persecution complex is not there. They feel like something bad happened to them, but they're, but, they're loath to generalize. You see, the, you see it in this, um, in this herbivore man thing, though. This, you know, the, the, here in the United States, this, like, this idea that there is a kind of cuckification, uh, a, a feminizing or a demasculinizing of men in general, uh, and that and this being a hand wringing, like panic inducing. I mean, it's a it's become an internet insult. I always find this stuff very unconvincing when people fret about new masculinity, the future of men, and it's because every time they suggest um, traits that men should have, they do not seem gender specific at all. It's like 
Decisiveness. Well, well, of course they should be. Yes, they should be <laughs> decisive and yet sensitive to the needs of, perceptive about the needs of. Like they, they're just describing a good person. Yeah, right. Anybody of, of, of either or any gender. <laughs> right. And everyone acts like you know uh, we need men like this. Well. I don't, it just seems like you're talking about people. Like by introducing the gender divide, you, you've created kind of the problem. Right. Like, can you operate a steering wheel? All right. Well, doesn't really matter anything else about you. That's you're exactly a qualified right. driver. Uh, so yeah, so I never, I never, I don't have much time for all this kind of thing, but I mean, maybe if, if men are falling short in some special way, that's the issue. Not the fact that men and women have equalized on the same ideals. I don't know. It seems like. What are the things that men are special at? Pickle jars. Coal mining? I mean, <laughs> we, we, we'll always have coal mining. Why are you trying to keep women out of the mines? I'm John? telling you, man, coal mining is my default uh, way of assessing whether or not a society is operating or not. So even though Japan is not having kind of the, the violence that we associate with the incel movement in America, they're extremely worried about but suicide the is demographics a form of here. Violence. Absolutely. Uh, Again, and, an internal one. Yeah. And and that is something people are seeing. Another story that's kind of rel- related to that is corpses are being found in closets, but it's the parents. The parents are starting to die off, and the kids just want to keep getting their their benefit checks. So who's the, putting the noodles under the door? <laughs> they have to start putting noodles under their own door. <laughs> is it Totoro? <laughs> in Japan, this is uh, you know the demographics involved are called the eighty fifty problem because so many of these fifty year old kids have eighty year old parents. By the year 2030, the majority of them are going to be dead. So in Japan, there's a lot of word that they're nearing some kind of demographic collapse crisis point where suddenly all these blinking hikikomori are going to be wandering the streets of Tokyo like zombies. So a lot of policy is going into how do you fix this? Every prefecture in Japan is now required by law to have essentially a mental health treatment center, basically a community center for hikikomori. Really? Where they can just, hopefully, they can kind of lure them out and give them a slightly more normal scenario than their childhood bedroom. What does that look like? Just a bunch of little bears shambolically sort of walking around in the corners, pacing in circles? I'm just picturing, I guess I'm picturing rehab, but with a really noisy game show on on the common room TV. Uh, where, where someone in a white jacket is like, like bringing two people together, like friends, friends. <laughs> well, that's also being done as well. There are nonprofits, uh, with names like new start where parents who are worried about a hikikomori child will pay $8,000 to essentially rent them a friend. They're called rental sisters. You, uh, you you hire a young woman to, uh, kind of gradually, um, to gradually acculturate them to social contact, you know, first writing notes and then writing more frequent notes and then seeing if they'll get on the phone. Maybe there's some internet chat level of this, you know, getting them to go to a a cafe with you and not talk, getting them to go to a cafe with you and talk. So for $8,000 a year, you, uh, you know, you, you rent a young woman to try to get your kid out of his bedroom. And it seems to be working there. There have been cases of marriages resulting, which I'm sure demographically challenged Japan is happy about. I, I, the tendency to to imagine all of uh, the hikikomori as also naive, I think, is pretty strong. But there are going to be plenty of them who are not naive, whose whose life on the internet has yeah, made they're on them, the internet all day, you know, right? They've become cynical, and um, and so like a rent a friend isn't gonna isn't gonna uh, cut it with the, probably a large percentage of these people. Maybe the novelty of it right. cu- cuts, you know, is, is what is what works. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, the, I guess the, the internet makes us all more suspicious, not not more naive. But there is in J- Japanese culture at least a tradition of understanding that you would go to a place, and I mean, the, I guess a geisha was often someone that you just that just talked to you, or you know, it was just a social friend. Not, not, uh, not, they, they aren't synonymous with prostitutes, right? There's a, there, there's a sense. And I, there are cafes in Japan or places that you go where you just, you pay money to just it's have not, a It's nice, nice to have someone pay attention yeah, to you. Just have someone uh, tell you that you look good. That's that the first day. thing I thought of when I, when I thought of, when I read about the rental sisters is, uh, and I was, I was kind of worried that I'm, you know, exoticizing the, the culture a little, but, right. you know, yeah, realizing the, the geisha tradition there, I, you know, I wonder if that's an influence. Well, how would you feel if you had, a, if you had someone 
who's who came around and was just nice to you? I feel like not like not like treacly, not like showering you with compliments, but was just nice. Didn't want anything. But you, or do you know they're getting paid eight thousand dollars a year? Well, that's to me, the that's question. the rub of it. That's the question. I mean, again, this is the argument for a monogamous marriage. You get someone who's going to be kind <laughs> but she's of. She's not nice to you. <laughs> no, I have a very nice wife. That's true. That's and true. and you get someone kind of being vaguely nice to you when they notice you. Right. Uh, I've I have felt as I've uh, just in recent years, like my baseline now is, uh, please be nice to me. And it's after years and years, I think, of seeking out people who were not nice to me. Now, when someone's just not nice to me for no reason or for reasons that seem small, I, I and it was it was weird the first time I said to someone, like, would you just please be nice to me or stop being not nice to me? It seemed so simple, and I felt almost like a child asking for it. But it also is simple. Just just be nice. This is normal. You've you've achieved adulthood. Yeah. You, you don't, don't need the, you don't need all those women you wanted to be mean to you and but what I want step on a, you with stiletto heels. What I want is a mean girl to be nice to me. That's the rub. And that concludes Hikikomori, entry five eight seven dot one K two 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 five. Certificate number 50644 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, although, let's be honest, your era will just be social media. You won't be able to distinguish it from reality. And everybody's avatar will look just like they do on the street. Yep. If streets still exist. You will be a giant panda, and your... Your... Most beloved will be a will be a friendly monkey with you stars for eyes. You keep imagining animals. They're not all going to be animals. What do you Every, think everyone's gonna just going to be like a muscle man or a seven foot tall willowy woman, or <laughs> like there's all kinds of crazy no. body mods that are not going to be um, animal paws. Nobody wants that. They're they're going to be like poop emojis. And uh, <laughs> what if the cute aesthetic? Mushrooms. What if the cute aesthetic goes away and never comes back? So nothing is cute. So everyone is just totally hardcore. Yeah. Like everyone's just got spikes and just leather like, and, and that, and that lasts forever. Cute was just a herbivore man fad. Can you imagine if like the road warrior aesthetic becomes <laughs> the whole few and every, everyone actually is just sitting in sweatpants, but their avatars are all mohawked and everyone's going to look like a different pro wrestler. Like if it can't be a pro, can Panda be a pro wrestling gimmick? No, then it can't be a future avatar. I swear to you, I feel like it's all uh, people are going to want to look like Peter Gabriel in early Genesis concerts, right? <laughs> They're all going to be dressed like big flowers, and why would why wouldn't you? It depends. It basically depends on which uh, mood altering drugs are most common. I think the thing that's going to be hardest for us to grok is that the big flower will be dating the mohawked wrestler. And we're not going right. to be, we're not going to Those are the two genders. Yeah, right. <laughs> These are now the two genders. Giant Peter Gabriel, Flower, and Mad Max. Well, I kind of can't wait to see that, but I hope to be watching it on a heads-up display from the hospital bed in which I die alone on an ice floe that is not in a hospital where no one else is around. You want an ice floe that's not in a hospital? I want a non-hospital ice floe but maybe that has a kind of hologram of a hospital so that I feel somewhat comforted. At this point, we're speaking to people who know you achieved your goal of your dream of dying alone. So these should be your people. You don't need a microphone to talk to them. Anyway, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are our, um, our, our training wheels of uh, future social media. They are they're essentially like the, the initial garbage version of it that will be swept away in the in the first wave of cataclysm when the the waters of the bay area rise up to drown them all all the companies that have ruined our (laughs) life will will die first at least they're closer to sea level than, than you are um but you can go back to those archived early days and see our tweets at at ken jennings and at john roderick um you can email us through the 
portal of space-time at theomnibusproject at gmail.com through a portal in space-time, not the portal of space-time. What if it's the only one? What if our email inbox somehow is, is the, is the, the only temporal vortex <laughs> that ever existed? Uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, you can interact with futurelings who are hilarious and insightful and their various avatars all seem to be generally like librarians who live in the Midwest, but that those may those, just those be, might be photographs. Those, like, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You think they're all LA hipsters yeah. dressed as Midwestern librarians? Yeah. They're like teenage Molly addicts at, at, uh, at, uh, Bonnaroo, but all, all those teenagers you see knitting at the DMV, that's what they do online. They've got their heads up display on and they're like, I work in library science at the university of Minnesota. I love omnibus. <laughs> Uh, Reddit also has a Futurelings group, and they are more dystopian just by uh, just by the nature of Reddit. Um, it's a contact high. Uh, you can mail us things, and Ken has a big box of mail sitting over there that he's kind of gradually opening. Look at this fun postcard we got from Dane. It's a Buckminster Fuller postcard. We often talk about yeah, Bucky Fuller on the show. Bucky. It's made of uh, it's made of aluminum. It's just like my American Express card. It's it's giant. Imagine if credit cards were actually postcard size. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> Look at that. It says thanks for all the great stories, and he wants to give us a tour of the uh, Dymaxion house. It looks if, if to we're me, ever there. It looks to me like he made that himself because the <laughs> edges are kind of punched out of a piece of. It seems like that may just have been that may have happened in a Grumman LLV mail truck. This yeah. maybe this was in a, a flatter shape when he sent it. Maybe that's why credit cards are not mm-hmm. are not three by five index card or four by six index card. Well, if you size. are somewhere uh, hand making aluminum uh, postcards of your favorite modern, send us uh, aluminum postcards. Architects. They will survive the cataclysm. Send them to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. And if you enjoy the show and wish to contribute in some way, great or small, to the uh, production of the show, contribute to it at patreon.com slash omnibusproject so that we may shove it in the face of our former corporate masters. <laughs> donate for <laughs> donate for vicarious revenge. So that we can... How much do you think people will pay a year for vicarious... Someone else's revenge? I think they will. You know, <laughs> this, this latest news, our former corporate masters just laid off a bunch of drive-time DJs in Iowa across the country, well, right? They well, laid now, off 12,000 people. Well, now those people can't afford to give. Good job, John. Well, but their old fans can. The people that used to listen to... To old Rick and Morty on morning radio, we're their backup. Yeah, there, so so we're, we, what we do is every month we write down the amount of money we are earning on Patreon on a on an aluminum postcard, <laughs> and we send it to out of work you know, DJs. We, no, we send oh. it to our former corporate masters with a big. Uh, and they get mad. They so get so mad, but they can't crumple it up. They can't crumple it because it's aluminum. Oh, that's they're so mad. They have to put it in the recycling where it just sits there and throbs. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization is about to survive. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, or at least that we will all be hiding in our bedrooms, um, eating rice balls that came under the door, and that we'll miss it. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope the time capsule will continue. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>